People of the world, it's the Brothers Talk family with your hosts, Rod, Scott, and Norm. Join us each Friday wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts or on our website to hear us three black, unfiltered African-American men with no strings attached, giving voice to the most feared, most misunderstood, and most rarely heard from segment of the population on topics of interest to us for education, enlightenment, and entertainment. You can reach us with your comments, questions, and suggestions at The Brothers Talk on Twitter, The Brothers Talk on Instagram, and the Facebook group of the same name. And also follow us on Facebook. And if you want to share in more detail, hit us up at the email address, thebrotherstalk at gmail.com. Stay tuned for our soon-to-launch YouTube channel, and now on with this week's show. Glad to have you back in the Brothers Talk family den, kitchen, barbershop, backyard, corner, or wherever you hold your relevant conversations to spur critical thinking and activism around support for the Black community. We're going to keep saying it as long as we have breath, because critical thinking is vitally important to us as the Black community. And we lose more ground every day that we fail to reason for ourselves and let others do our thinking and telling us what to believe instead of exercising our God-given brains like they were intended. And remember, we're always about Black love and building self-sufficiency through our relaunching Black Wall Street nationwide campaign with a focus on exploding the number of Black-owned businesses that are created and supporting them with our dollars and our mouths and doing it one household at a time. As we keep saying, let's not wait for others to do what we can control in our own homes. Lastly, for me, Black family, please help us shoot down all the ignorance that's out there about the COVID-19 vaccinations and masks. Unlike other myths and information, those lies are killing and we're still being hit the hardest. So let's not endanger the lives of our elders and those who are immunocompromised or underlying conditions because the same science that's being rejected by those spreading the falsehoods is the same science that will be coveted and in demand to save their lives in the hospital. So we can't say it strongly enough. Get vaccinated and wear your mask. I know I'll still be wearing mine for a while, even after the science says it's officially safe not to. Greetings as well to any first-time listeners. Thanks for joining us, and we look forward to you becoming long-time listeners and helping us in spreading the word about the podcast and what we're doing. And now to my brothers in the struggle for critical thinking, Scott and Norm. Hey, family. Uh, thank you for your continued support. Uh, like Rod said, we got to do something about all of the lies, not disinformation or misinformation. They're just lying about the, about the virus. I'm really, really concerned because the message that is coming out of the federal government, out of CDC, um, you know, I'm just not confident in what they're saying. I mean, it's, it's confusing. We're getting too many confusing messages from legitimate people, and we're getting a lot of lies and misinformation from, from a lot of folks on the right who, for whatever reason, are trying to encourage people not to get vaccinated. Uh, one of the things, though, that that I think we really, really, really got to do here is uh, we got to rethink the way that that we at black folks approach everybody else. I mean, people keep telling us to take responsibility, but it's more, it's, it's, it's more to it than that. Uh, they don't want to, they don't want to acknowledge all of the inherent systemic racism in this country that pre- prevented us from going forward. But anyway, that's, that's a whole topic for a whole nother day. Uh, be safe out there, go out there and support black businesses and uh, respect each other and keep each other safe. You know? 
Thanks, Scott. I just want to thank the international community out there, our listeners who really helped us spread the word and just lend us the ear every week in regards to issues concerning our community and the world. And I want to just ask that you would continue to spread the word about what we're trying to do here and the positive effects that we're having on our community in this country and hopefully your community, wherever you are. And let's just continue the good work and be safe and watch COVID. Rod. Today's episode focuses on a seemingly ever-present topic in our community, us and the law. And for this extremely significant conversation today, our guest is another of our longtime brothers, retired police Lieutenant Kenny Reed. Kenny was a decorated member of law enforcement for over 30 years with the Plainfield, New Jersey Police Department, where he worked in virtually every capacity, including working with various collaborative task forces that included county, state, and federal resources. Additionally, he's a renowned and requested speaker for numerous groups and organizations addressing both disparities in the application of the criminal justice system and what we need to do differently in our communities to stop criminal behaviors either before they manifest or how to turn around from them if they are already present. He's appeared on TV programs like the Sally Jesse Raphael show and is well-respected as a husband, father, uncle, cousin. And today we're introducing him as a brother to the rest of our family. Ken, like we always do before we dive into the conversation, when we come into the house, say hello to the rest of the family. Hello, everyone. Um, it's good to be here. It's always interesting. Uh, it's always sad, really, when we have to discuss some of the things that are, you know, pressing our community right now. But they're very necessary conversations. And so, um, as Rodney said, Rodney's been my brother for many, many years. And anytime will be available uh, to Rodney and this group. So thank you for having me and um, let's get it going. There's a lot to unpack this week, so please stay with me. The podcast continues after 109 episodes to be about the conversations that we have in our communities that aren't being featured in the mainstream media because you don't just don't have enough opportunities to hear from the barbershops, beauty salons, gyms, backyards, basements, corners, and family rooms where brothers talk about what we consider important from our unique perspective. As I said earlier, there's a recurring theme about how the legal justice system plays out when it comes to us as black people. Just last week, we saw a female cop who claimed she mistakenly pulled her gun instead of her taser and shot and killed 20-year-old Dante Wright during a traffic stop, get sentenced to a measly 16 months by an Asian-American judge who teared up after hearing this white policewoman cry. The judge then basically nullified the jur jury verdict of those who found the officer guilty of both first and second degree manslaughter, not involuntary manslaughter, but manslaughter. And I make the distinction because the judge said in her sentencing that the policewoman didn't intend to hurt or kill anyone. Sorry, but that's the definition for involuntary manslaughter. The jury didn't say that. And to compound the matter, the judge ignored the state of Minnesota's guidelines of six to eight years for manslaughter. Now compare that to a black Kentucky woman, Pamela Moses, a 44 year old activist in Memphis who was convicted in November for trying to register to vote while she was ineligible. Last week, she was sentenced to six years and one day in prison, even though she only tried to register and was still listed on the voter rolls, even though technically she should have been taken off because of a felony conviction she had over evidence tampering that extended back to 2015. 
And not only was she not told that she was ineligible to vote at that time, but her probation officer gave her a signed form stating that her probation had ended, thus making her eligible to vote. That's a whole nother case, but you see the point. 16 months for taking a black life versus six years for a, at best a voting mix up. So when anybody says get over it and move on, we need to ask them exactly how we do that. When every direction we turn north, south, east, and west, we keep running into blatant racism. Ken, what say you, my brother? I say that um, it's very, very uh, disturbing to um, hear about that because she attempting to vote and there was some type of mix up is really only a disorderly person's offense. So in my mind, um, I'm not sure what state was she in, Rodney? Kentucky. Yeah, yeah. So these laws in some of these other states really have to be revisited and um, have to be uh, reworked because um, in New Jersey, that would have uh, that wouldn't even existed, you know, trying to vote, but there, would, there wouldn't have been a charge at all. And in my mind, there would have been no reason for that uh, lady to be on probation. Uh, parade, it's ridiculous. That's not, that's, 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 that's just not something that would happen here. But um, there, there has to be a distinction between what's, serious and what's not serious you know trying to uh, attempt to vote um shouldn't really even be an offense and and you know i find that very um very heartbreaking right i kind of want to follow up with what you started with the sentence that this officer was given and looking at it through the lens of the black officer who murdered the white woman and the charges that he was convicted of were nowhere near the charges that this white woman was convicted of, yet his sentence was well over 10 years. Yeah, he got like 12 years, I think. Or he got like 12 years. 12 or 16, or something like that. Something like that. And I just wanted to ask our guest, Kenny, what do you think of the no-knock warrants? Well, there was a time when, um, you know, I'm not sure if... Uh, you're aware, but I worked in narcotics, and I was uh, when I when we did many investigations. There were times when we had to distinguish between getting a, a warrant and a no knock warrant, and um, you know, to get a no knock warrant, I believe you have to really have significant evidence that there is imminent threat um, to life if you execute this warrant, that, that's, that's really it. When we knew, um, when we were doing a drug raid or something of that nature that was very serious, and we knew that the person that we were dealing with was of a very um, serious nature and, and that uh, raiding this facility or this place, home, apartment, whatever it may be, may have caused death to anyone, not just police, anyone um, was the reason why a lot of times we would get a no-knock warrant. Um, many of these cases where I am hearing and reviewing, um, there, there's um, 
might have been drug activity or suspected drug activity. And there has to, there should never be a suspected drug activity. There should have been evidence of um, something, but um, no knock warrants. They had their, when I was doing it, they had their reason. But um, now what I'm seeing is there are a lot of situations where they're getting no knock warrants where they're not actually providing the documentation to say that this is a violent, this place is definitely may cause someone to have a loss of life if we execute this warrant. So they have to be looked at a little bit harder. I'm trying to think of the case where they did a no-knock warrant and they went in and a young man was killed and they were looking for someone and then they had the wrong apartment. That should have never happened. And that should have never happened. The um, young lady who was just sentenced to um, the 16 months and the judge actually, first of all, the judge is supposed to be impartial. You know, I, I find that very disturbing that the judge would start um, showing emotion as she's sentencing uh, this person. Uh, I find it very, you know, knowing the facts of what were released in that case, that she was a 25 year veteran training officer and she couldn't distinguish between a firearm and a taser I find that very alarming because we as police officers, you carry a weapon 24 hours a day, not just when you're working, but even when you're off, you have some type of firearm on you when you're off duty. And so you should know the difference in the weight and the handling between a firearm and a taser. That just does not sit well with me. As, as I've shared with Rodney over numerous times, you know, what seems to kick in is there's an inner racism that they may not even know that they have within them. And then when they're pushed under a situation that, you know, where they're real, they go in real excited the fear or the, the, the deeply rooted what's in them comes out because they, they go for the thing that is most damaging to them. And, you know, they're not afraid of what looks like them, but what doesn't look like them, they still, you know, as much as they might say they have black friends and everything else, that deeply rooted issue, it always comes out. And a lot of people, you know, create those relationships with Black folks just because of the fear, just because of, you know, they want to be able to say that they have those relationships. But um, there's a lot of things that I see. And, you know, I hear a lot of people saying it's not training. And um, I tend to disagree with that because um, training always helps. The only difference is the training should be just strictly about um, relations with minority. And it should be another extra three, four weeks, whatever, 
in the academy, but there should be a real strict policy that's written by folks that look like us that really put them to test when they're in the academy. And if they fail that, that's another reason to remove them from the academy. You know, that that's, that's a real uh, reason to see what's on the inner. No, you know, you mentioned um, uh, the woman, I was gonna ask you about that. You mentioned the, the, the judge who was crying and showing those kind of emotions. And I, that was kind of shocking to me. I just, I just couldn't believe I was seeing that. And I was wondering, had you witnessed that too? But uh, I also wanted to know what you really thought about how black people should take that. I mean, the way I took it, I took it as, wow, this is what we've always thought that these Asian people thought of us. This is what we've always thought. This is what most black people thought because of the way that we get treated when we go into their stores and their shops and stuff like that. But for her to be crying for a woman who killed somebody else, who took a life, and she's crying for the lady who took the life, that's, I don't think, much, nothing of Black people. Let me tell you something. Black people should be very offended. In fact, it's very, in my opinion, it's very disrespectful to the family that's sitting there that will never see that person walk through the door. And um, um, the, the relationships that you've had with that person that is now deceased, the um, conversation, the jokes, the, you know, that, that's never gonna happen again. And for this person to only get some time, you know, um, is ridiculous. And, 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 and then you find some emotions, uh, then you become very emotional for this person, but you're not shedding tears for us. That, that's very, I think, disrespectful. And um, yeah, we should be offended. And it shows us that we still got a long way to go. And we still got a lot of work to do. You know, a lot of these other people of different origins come here and they get treated much better than we do um, after we've been here for a number of years. And it shows you that they still don't see us as equals or um, people. You know, they just, they see us as something different. And it, it should, we should be very offended by that. And we should be, we should always watch what conversations we are in. And, you know, um, I know sometimes at, at work, you're in conversations with people and, um, you know, you can't let anyone get away with things. You know, I can say that uh, for myself, I can recall how one, you know, every year we have Halloween and the day before is considered mischief night. And so in most towns where there's, you know, a lot of higher crime or, and you know that that night is going to be a very, very busy night and you're really not sure what to expect. So in most police departments, what they will do is put a high presence of police out there to try to stop some of the eggs throwing and the, you know, the stuff that takes place and the little uh, cheap robberies and 
and different things. So in saying that, what they'll do is they'll take people who are in the specialized units, um, you know, who wear plain clothes most of the time and things like that. And they'll tell you, they'll make everyone wear uniforms for that particular night. So this one night um, I was in the car with two guys, the driver and another guy. And um, because we knew we didn't have to really respond to anything, we just had to be out there in case something happened. You know, we thought it would have been like a laid back night for us. So I'm laying in the back seat of the car, stretched out. I truly believe they forgot I was back there. So as you see constantly how police cars pull up next to each other and talk to one another. So as I'm laying there, uh, we pull up next to another officer and he says to the driver in my car, he says, hey, they got you guys wearing uniform tonight? And the driver, I lost all respect for him. His response was, yeah, they got us sucking up those niggers' asses tonight. So I jumped up. What? What? And I jumped out, left, wrote it up, was waiting, actually, for them to take an action on the person, which they never really did. But um, you have to stand your ground on what you believe and let people know who you are. And from that moment on, you know, I was a young cop, thought, you know, that, you know, when you're young and you start to achieve some things in life, you, you're starting to feel good about yourself and different things like that. And, you know, you're feeling like you're one of the boys and everything. But at that point, that's when I knew it separated me from people I worked with to who I was. And, um, and it, it, it became a real tense situation. Many people in, in the Plainfield area know that at one point I um, did a lot of news articles against the police chief and different things like that. And it was all because of those issues. You know, he was a Hispanic chief at the time, but just as this Asian lady, they saw themselves pulling closer to the opposite side and anything black, you know, it was almost like your word was, your word didn't take precedence over something a white one said. So he was forced to uh, write a response, uh, which I've never saw, but um, nothing really ever happened to him. All right. So thanks, Ken. You've given us a lot to think about, and we'll definitely look forward to having you back with us in the future, because as we said, this is the beginning of an issue that seems to have no shelf life. And you basically answered the question for us. What do we tell young people when every time there's another police killing of the next Michael Brown Jr., George Floyd, Eric Garner, Breonna Taylor, or Amir Locke, and they hear the title responses about a few bad apples and not all cops being bad, you've basically given us the answer. What do we tell them when they say, how do we tell the difference? So in our Black Business Spotlight of the Week, Elizabeth Abenal, who is the founder and CEO of 40 Acres Fresh Market, a Black-owned startup grocer that offers fresh and healthy food options on Chicago's west side has been awarded a $2.5 million grant from the city. She plans to use the funds to transition her pop-up store to a brick-and-mortar store. 
She founded the operation in 2018 to improve food access in a community which had been a food desert. Since then, she's been running pop-ups, farmer's markets, a storefront that operates on weekends, and a grocery delivery service, but she always dreamed of opening a brick-and-mortar store. Her dream came true with the city of Chicago backing development of 40 Acres Fresh Market with that $2.5 million grant under the Chicago Recovery Plan set to fund part of her grocery store's construction. The store is expected to bring fresh and healthy food choices closer to the people in the neighborhood, that it will also benefit other nearby businesses and build cohesion in a community as part of the social infrastructure with increased foot traffic and local dollars being circulated to stay within that West Side community. So that's a wrap for another program. And God willing, we'll keep our focus on the issues that impact our community on the path to a better future. Don't forget you can follow and communicate with us, sending your comments, questions, and show ideas to The Brothers Talk on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or email us, thebrotherstalk at gmail.com. Until the next time, as always, we sincerely appreciate your time and interest that we'll never take it or you for granted. And remember, let's do better today because that's all we really have.